This is SciBite, episode 77 for January 15th, 2013. And welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live Tuesdays and fresh Wednesdays over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. All right. What are we talking about today? Today, we're going to take a look at analyzing your breath, large structures on a universal scale, inflatable space station modules, spacecraft updates, curiosity news, and always take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. Oh man, the science of what's in my breath. I can only, I can only imagine. <laughs> However, I feel our first news story is a big one. All right, Miss Heather, what is our first news story? Okay. Now there are big things on earth, you know, big things, but... Oh yeah. In the universe, there are some humongous structures, and they just got even bigger. All right. You're talking Wait. like Jupiter, right? That's big. Jupiter's big. No. Like the sun. The sun's big. No. No? No. It it makes lots of galaxies together look insignificant. What? Galaxies together? Yeah. that It makes them look small. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So quasars are like this nuclei of a galaxy in like the early days of the universe, they had like extremely high brightness, mm. visible across huge different distances. You know, they could last ten to a hundred million years, which actually is very brief in the astronomical time time sense. But in 1982, well, since then we've known that quasars, these galaxy nuclei, they tend to gather together, kind of group up, and we call them large quasar groups. So it's a number of these galaxies with really bright nucleus kind of clumped together a little bit. Now, using some data from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, they have found data in the data that you ever so love. And an international team of researchers has actually discovered a record-breaking cluster of these. Oh. And a mind-blowing four billion light years across. Whoa, four billion? With a B. Okay, so in comparison, the Milky Way is just like 100,000 light years across. Holy smoly. our nearest neighbor, the Andromeda Galaxy, is two and a half million. So a little bit bigger. Now, there's a clump. Yeah, yeah, so two and a half million. Now, our two galaxies are in kind of a clump of galaxies, a local super cluster, they call them. Okay. uh, Virgo. That's 100 million light years across. Okay, that's pretty big. Now, this large quasar group is 650 million light years, the normal ones. Okay, okay. Normally 650 million light years across, while whole clusters of these can be, you know, 6.5 billion or so. Mm. I mean, million, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Million. Yeah, million. Slight difference there. Right, (laughs) right. Now, this specific one is kind of elongated. It's not a perfect sphere. Now, the longest dimensions think kind of egg from one end of the egg to the other. Four billion light years across. 
So this is 1,600 times larger than the distance between Milky Way and our nearest galactic neighbor, Andromeda. So this thing is so big, it's kind of tweaking the whole physics ideas that we have on the universe. Like assumptions that we make, like, okay, you know. This thing sounds like it's the size of a universe. It's so big, it's really messing up how we think of the universe. Right, I can see that. So, because, let's see, the cosmological principle, it's kind of going back and assuming, okay, the universe, giant thing, probably going to be mostly homogeneous, kind of, you know, fairly much the same everywhere you look. It's not going to be really uneven. Now, kind of based on some work by Einstein that kind of assumed that, and the whole theory of cosmology comes from those basic tenets. Now, it's never really been proven beyond a reasonable doubt, but we've made all these calculations, and they say, you know, based on that, that there could absolutely be nothing bigger than 1.2 million light years across. And if you remember, what we were just talking about is something 1.6 billion light years across. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. So this is, it means like all the current mathematical descriptions of the universe, really oversimplified. We're like, hmm, now all of these really complex calculations look like they belong in an elementary school. Darn. Wow. Gonna need so, new computers. Yeah. So it's even more difficult and serious increase in the complexity of these things to be able to kind of glance, you know, at a better idea of how everything goes around. Yeah, well, Dr. B, he says, uh, so science lost the showcase showdown. <laughs> well, instead of over-guessing the price... We right. underguessed the price by way a lot. Exactly. So, yeah. so you still win, right? But because nobody else guessed, uh, nobody else. No, guessed it, any... Nobody else is guessing. We're not right. playing against anybody <laughs> right. else. And like creepy uncle says, you know, as far as, as far as failing goes, this is kind of like science failing in a good way. Well, yeah. You, any some any hypothesis or theory in science, you're going to prove one way or the other. You know, is it the old tenet, um, three thousand? Failures is just proving 3,000 ways it won't work. So one of the most... It it narrows it down. One of the most mathematically defined discoveries of this massive object, um, or or, or I guess it's a collection of objects, technically, uh, uh, this is um, just found within the data? Just like, just the stuff we already received a long time ago filed away in the database, and it's it's just been hiding in there the entire time? Somewhat, yeah. Wow. Now, a lot of times they go through from this Sloan Digital Sky Survey, there's just so, so much data. Right. That, you know, I'm looking for one, say this picture. You know, say one picture of a whole galaxy. Now, I can be looking for one thing. I could be looking for stars of a specific nature at a certain age in their lifetime to try to get better research on that. And you could be looking at the gases around really, really old stars. And somebody from the chat room could be looking. There are so many different things you could be looking for. And especially when you're getting on these larger scales, you're having to sort of piece together all this data into a big sky, you know, all the, you know, all together. 
So then you start getting larger ideas of what's going on. And if you get part away there, then you could sort of put in for some extra time to fill in the gaps of what's there. So now where do they go? Now they look at this a whole bunch and hit the math chalkboards <laughs> a lot. Mm. Wow. So it's really interesting. It's like, wow, that wasn't supposed to be there. It wasn't supposed to be something that big. Makes you mm. wonder what else, not only what else is out there, obviously, that's the next question. Yeah. But uh, what else is lurking in the data? Yeah. What do we well, already know, but we just don't know we know it? <laughs> yeah. Well, we come across this a, a, a lot, really. Every couple of months, there's an episode, you know, that it was a story that I'm like, hey, data in the data. You know, for this Sloan Digital Sky Survey, they just took, you know, trying to cover the, as much of the sky as possible. So all that, the whole purpose of that telescope is just gather as much data as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just gather everything. Mm-hmm. Take pictures everywhere. You know, you're going through a town, you're just going to take a picture of everything you see. Then you'll toss it into a big box and let people look through it. Sift through it, yeah. <laughs> then, then the people who want to check out coffee houses will dig through all of them to pick up all the coffee house pictures. It's kind of like or somebody Google else does. who wants to know where all how many dogs there are, they'll try to find all the dog pictures. So, it's the dumping everything in the boxes. You know, it's just that's your job is just to take pictures of the sky and dump it in the giant box of the uh, of the data, and then everybody else comes to it and says, "What do we want to look for?" Right. What's and then they lines? go, "Cool," or they go, "Huh." Didn't notice that before. Was it? I think I've mentioned it before, but one of the the science sayings that I felt found fell across over the last year and really love is the greatest science discoveries don't so much follow the word eureka as huh huh <laughs> yep <laughs> didn't hmm. where did that come from oh look at that huh huh. Yeah. Didn't think he was going to do that. Famous last words. Hmm. Huh. Hmm. <laughs> well, and then uh, go back and look at everything you can. Kind of a neat discovery. And uh, yeah. one of those things, too, where you hear about it, you see the pictures of you know what the different artists think it might look like. But uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever get to see something quite like it in my life. Like it, really see it. You know, I want to see real pictures. Oh, well... They're not really pictures so much as you take a picture. These quasars aren't. Well, to some degree, you see the, you could see the light, but you're looking at in mm, different wavelengths. Right, right, so they right. could really pick up the really distant stuff. Right, right. So a lot of this astronomical data that comes from these sky surveys and everything, not quite as pretty, pretty as the, you know, right. Hubble books. Right, the actual the picture. Greatest images. It's so funny because you have you have the actual picture, right? Which is this like green splotchy. Yeah, that's the the date, kind of a data sheet almost. Yeah, and it's not quite as pretty as the. Uh, not as compelling, no. Yeah, as the shinies they put from uh, Hubble, but right. it has lots of science to it. There's <laughs> science in those green dots. <laughs> looks like a almost looks like a petri dish. There's but, science uh, in them, there are dots. Well, any other thoughts on that one? No, I don't think so. 
All right. Well, then uh, I want to remind folks that uh, if you're on the go and you have yourself one of them, their Android smart devices, mm-hmm, you can grab yourself a little sci-fi and the other shows on the go. Just go over to the Google Play Store. I hate that they call it Google Play, but go to the Google Market and search for Jupiter Broadcasting and you'll see a few apps come up. We'll talk about two this week. Uh, so the first one is uh, just called Jupiter Broadcasting by Shane Kufel. And the nice thing about this, if you have a little bit newer device, you don't have to, though, is it can do our live video stream as well. And it can also do the live audio stream, and it'll put them in the background. It can also go to the back catalog and pull previous episodes of shows for you, which is really cool. If you are more of an audio person and uh, you don't really have much need for video, then we have Callisto by QWorks. What's really cool about Callisto is it ties in great with the Jupiter Radio, which throughout the week, all week long has original content on it every single day. So even when we, when we don't have a show live, there's generally something on Jupiter Radio. So that's something nice if you just want to have an extra station to tune into while you're on the go and hear our shows. Plus, it has the calendar. You can join the chat room and you can contact and donate to the network all from the Callisto app, which is really nice. And it also will grab the back catalog. It can download the MP3 files or stream them without having to download. And it has a nice view for the calendar. So that's uh, Callisto. And uh, the other one's just called Jupiter Broadcasting. You can find both those as well as an additional app called uh, jblive.tv, which is just the uh, video streams in the Google Play Store. That way you can do it on your Android phone when you're on the go. How about that, Heather, huh? Nice. Nice. All right. Well, then uh, with that filed, why don't we move on? To the news bite. News bite. All right, what is our first story in the news bite? Yes. News bite story? All right, we've got inflatable space station modules. I love this. So, uh, all right, all right, I'm down with this. I could take that up. They're real yeah. easy, right? Super light to travel with. Doesn't, yeah. Doesn't they- take a lot of room. Nice and compact. You can vacuum seal it. Vacuum seal it. <laughs> okay, technically in space, it's still vacuum sealed. Oh wow, good point. Even even inflated. Very very uh, good point. Okay, so on January 11th, NASA announced that they had actually awarded a uh, 17.8 million dollar contract to Bigelow Aerospace to provide some new inflatable modules for the space station. Which you know it's real. There's a contract. It's gonna be the first privately built modules. Added to the space station. Now, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I kind of looked at this and I'm like, wow. Now, but you know, somebody was saying, but inflatable—that sounds dangerous. Like it would pop. Yeah, actually, they've had a module up in 2007. They oh. launched it. Okay. It's still functioning and in orbit. I'm sure they, it, must be, it must be made of some tougher material, right? Oh yeah, it's multiple layers. The outer shell shell of the module is soft as opposed to you know a rigid exterior for the current modules but there's so many layers of different material in fact one of the materials is well stronger than uh, kevlar far outranks kevlar oh really yeah it's uh vectran twice as strong as kevlar now so it's all of those. And because of those many layers of this really tough material, it's actually more resistant to micrometeorites or orbital debris strikes than the rigid modules that are out there now. No kidding. Yeah. And you know, so they launched one in 2007. It had video and data tracking, and it's still functioning. They sent another one up uh, a few years ago. It's still happy. 
So they're, the whole idea is they'll only be in orbit and in use for about two years. And then they'll kind of keep rotating out. Now, you know, one's been there since 2007. So pretty sure that a two-year time span is going to be perfectly fine. Now, it's kind of, they'll be used for, you know, some science, some storage, things of that nature. But in on the whole, they'll be already be launched by commercial cargo suppliers like SpaceX or hmm. um, Orbital Science Corp. Or, you know, so all these kind of private organizations that are launching to the space station will be able to launch the private-built modules for the space station. So we're having a lot of privatization of space here. So I, I joked when you mentioned the headline, but do they actually ship up smaller? I mean, they look like they're almost... You can't inflate them, deflate them that much. No, you'll, you'll be able to. You can. Okay, I so have, they travel easier then. Yeah, they do travel easier. Well, that's partly the point is that... Wow, yeah. And why they'd call it inflatable. I mean, if it had to stay rigid, it'd just be soft exteriored. But you could shrink it down to some degree and then reinflate it in space so it travels much easier. But even, you know, they're testing it on the space station, but they want to make their own. They want to launch and link up a couple of these modules to create their own private space station. That could be used for various people. Wow, I never even thought about the concept that there could just be a private station up there that doesn't have any government affiliation. Yeah, well, years ago it was, I don't remember how public-wide known it was, but there was almost a joke that they were doing the space hotel. And this was the whole idea, is launch <laughs> up these inflatable modules once, um, you know, orbital science, the all these private organizations can launch up to orbit, then I'm going for the most ultimate vacation ever. I buy my seat on my inter-to-orbit inter, um, airline. I get up to orbit. I go to the space hotel, this private space station of inflatable modules. Yes. And I rent my room there, and I, I have a vacation in orbit. Yes. I'm there with you, Heather. It's going to be going to be a blast uh you know what yeah. and then after that i and I, now i don't know if you want to do this maybe we'll do a show from up there but i tell you what it, i yeah of course yeah okay but what would really kind of i think be really neat is after that or maybe before while i wait have you seen those underwater hotels oh yeah right? so you do you do not so wouldn't that be cool to do an underwater hotel and a space hotel all right like last week big streams one guy went to the mariana trench and the other guy's Diving from way up high yeah. will we'll do even better. Yeah, yeah. We'll be like on a show from under the sea and then in space. <laughs> big show. We got a big show. Yeah. <laughs> we got a big yeah. show over. Beep. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I guess if they've had them in use since 2007, the bigger story really is, uh, uh, you know, the, the privatization angle of it, isn't it? Yeah, that it is. NASA has got a contract on it so it's moving forward in that kind of a way and it's interesting because you know, in the last six months especially we've seen a lot of contracts go out that are actually moving forward rather quickly real hardware they get a lot of contracts that's you know building things and moving towards something but these are hardware launch ready equipment you know they had the dragon so they, they can you know private pri the private company get the 
cargo up there. Now they have a private company that can have modules up there. So it's kind of... And I like what uh, Bishop LSD, Bishop Loves LSD in the chat room is saying is that maybe it's because they're easier to transport, maybe mm-hmm. it's more likely structures that would be uh, more practical to set up on Mars if we were ever going to be lucky enough to have human boots on the ground there. They're already talking about uh, Lunar Station on the moon. Oh, okay. They're that saying too, yeah. that put up a couple of these with propulsion tanks, power units, you know, join them together in space, fly them down to the lunar surface, and then just pile lunar dirt over them and that even gets you protection against radiation thermal extremes more mic- uh, micrometeorite strikes wow I mean at this point I need a good reason why we're not already doing this <laughs> this just sounds like a slam dunk well all in good time I know yes I know alright well uh, sh- uh, should we uh, shift gears to talking about my breath sure alright now we've we've actually covered breath previously on uh, Cybite forty six, yes, where we have. you have a breathalyzer that does more than find out how much you've had to drink, and that was looking for various um, various things that could screen for cancer and there's a number of different uh, diseases it could scan for, and now we have a new one that could detect the presence of common infectious bacteria. Oh, so with all the nastiness in the country going around yeah. and around everywhere. In so now house. they've got <laughs> Yes, and in your in your poor house. <laughs> and all of my clients. Oh, oh and everyone yeah. everywhere. It's a siege. Yes. So this actually measures um, VOC, volatile organic compounds. These are particles emitted in gases that you can sort of take a profile of and it shows you what bacteria or specifically that gives those off. So you can kind of back calculate everything. You're like, okay, this is all what we see. Now, the cold gives off this one. Strep gives off this one. And you can link it back. So it's a very quick diagnosis. They actually have done it with lab mice. They infected them with a couple of different common bacteria. Um, things like that cause pneumonia. Right. Or, lung infections and things like that. Yeah, lung infections, all these different types of things. And then they tested the animal's breath the next day by analyzing, uh, ionizing some samples and then shooting them through this mass spectrometer. They could analyze various concentrations of all of these organic compounds. Then the test was able to identify different bacterial infections as well as dif- dif- differentiate between the healthy and infected. So they very quickly say, nope, healthy, infected, and be able to tell different strains of something. Huh. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so it's really fast turnaround. So you could get the exact specific strain of whatever you have. You know what it is. You can make a good um, you know, drug to that specific infection. You could you know, detect bacterial infections. Are they, you know, bacterial? Are they viral? Are they fungal? All these type of things that need very specific and different types of drugs to treat. And you could actually um, see if you have somebody that has uh, drug resistance tuberculosis. And so there's all these different ailments and things that you could get a very quick, Hmm. you you know, you go into the doctor and you have the crud, you Mm -hmm. know, and they take a sample Mm -hmm. and you're given something generic and you go home and then it comes back two weeks later 
He's like, yep, you had that. Yeah, you know what? Actually, my wife and I were just talking about this because when the kids get sick, we get down to this, like, should we? do, do we even bother going in? Because, I mean, sometimes, obviously, there's a yes. But when they're kind of in that phase where it's like, ah, you know what? It might not be worth it. And the, the big deterrent, honestly, is the delay in any actual answer. Yeah. You know, any certainty on what action we should take. And by the time we almost get the answer, the situation's almost resolved itself almost inevitably every single time this has happened to us. Mm-hmm. It's frustrating. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times if someone will have something chronic, like I had a lot of chronic ear to ear infections when I was a kid. And so some, the same thing would come along and it's when it's the fourth one and, you know, in two years, then we call the doctor and he sighs and he sends in a script. You know, he's like, okay, yeah, I'm pretty sure I know what this is about. Right. But yeah, you go in and you're like, oh, thanks. I'm, I said, I had a, a family member who went in and had um, swine flu and something else, both at the same time. Oh my gosh. And she was practically yeah. comatose. And then they, you know, went in, had the blood work and they said, go away, don't come back. And the blood work came back later, and they're like, yeah, this is what you had. Oh, no wonder I felt so cruddy. But yeah, this kind of a thing, you get back, and you could get that quick turnaround. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of a regular infection, was it a, a fungal infection? I knew somebody that had a, you know, there was a, a bunch of the crud and the flu going around, except they had a fungal infection in their lungs. Oh, yeah, boy. And so they had this, you know, they were being treated, and nothing would work, nothing would work, and they finally got some results back and they went oh let's switch you to something that actually works for what you have have you have you seen anything when you're reading about this in terms of like price or how close it is actually to market um they're getting closer they're i think they're looking towards large-scale testing with, with any of these it's so hard to say with the medical profession, I can't read in between the lines as well as There's a lot of variables getting to market. But, like, we know, we do know that they've successfully tested on mice. Yeah, they have, and that's a really good step. And this is one of those things where it's not so much a treatment. So it can move forward a little bit quicker, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is just, I mean, at the, at the start, it may be sort of a parallel diagnosis. You know, start a wider scale, you know, test both with this and your blood work. And then see if they are identical <laughs> and keep going through. Going through. Yeah. So, I mean, with all these things, they're looking for, you know, more and more things that we'll be able to detect with breath very quickly. Um, we'll be able to detect diabetes or cancer or so all these type of things. It's really nice that because it is such a quick turnaround. Um, somebody in the chat room was like, oh, no, insurance you know, costs stuff. But it's interesting because it's kind of a dual-edged sword. If you can get diagnosed quicker with the proper drugs, then what you have possibly won't last too long. You're able to get treated, you know, in a timely manner that it's not going to get as serious. Man, I'd love to see this come to the market. Oh, yeah. I wonder, I wonder too, uh, you know, I, I honestly, I, my, my mind goes to schools. For some reason, it seems yes. like, you know, maybe you could put something like this in the nurse's office. 
Yeah. That I don't know. Maybe I don't know how sanitary that would be. They'd have to come up with a you know way to clean the mouthpiece or replace them. But it just seems yeah disposable. Obviously, it seems like uh, you know trying to trying to make the decision to call the parent to come pick their kid up and things like that. If this thing could be really fast, mm-hmm. even if it was like an hour, maybe I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, if if something goes you know is starting to spread around the school, right? Then. Do you have a possibility of testing someone and then saying, ha ha, nice try, Johnny, go take your spelling test? I remember when I worked for this, for my local school district here, they always kind of walked this line of like they, they want to contact the parents and send the kid home, but they don't want to jump the gun on it, but they don't yeah. want to infect other kids. And, you know, yeah. just, the list goes on and on. And so, yeah, I, oh, I mean, yeah. just to me, school seemed like a, but I, I just know it would have massive widespread use. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was, you know, some schools have a simple cutoff of mine. It, they didn't really care. If you ran 100 degrees, then you were sent home. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. they just kind of pointed and laughed. <laughs> that was the policy when I was in school. But then later when I, when I became an employee, uh, I just, you know, they just were changing things up. Yeah, when my mom was an employee at a school, she caught everything under the sun yes. and the moon. Yeah, yeah, yes. And I do that now because I have kids in daycare and I work with clients. So I would yeah. like to just like, yes, uh, yes, I'd be happy to work for you as an IT contractor. Uh, could you breathe into this first? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, right? See, I'll buy one. Yeah. Maybe I can yeah, hook it up go. to like a tablet and I'm good to go. Well, Like come up to the door, wave. Just, like, uh, breathe. Give it inside the yeah. door. Could you like, pass this around your office first and then hand it back to me and then I'll come in if uh, if it reads out okay. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll download it to my phone. And should right. you pass, right, right. I will do work for you and you can pay me money. Right. Um, and then maybe what I could do is I could just make a marketing opportunity. If they are sick, I charge them a hazard rate. You know, I double my rate oh, or something Oh, like a hazard fee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, so there's there's market opportunity there. You yeah. Any other thoughts on that one? No, I'm just kind of looking forward to these kind of fast, you know, diagnostic tools. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, then. Well, then let's move on to the Two Bike News. All right, Heather, what is our first story in the Two Bike News? All righty. We've talked about it before. One-way ticket to Mars, but it's one way. I think we talk about it all the time, to be honest. Yes. I mean, even but, one-way trips, I'm, I, I, would, I would at least contemplate. Yeah, but this is like the Netherlands base. It's a nonprofit, Mars One there. Like, whole purpose is to put first boots on the red planet by 2023. Wow. So, and so they they're looking for one-way, one-way volunteers to accomplish yeah, that? It's you go and you don't come back. That's the whole point is they're not worried about a return trip. And they've announced some requirements on the January 8th. They'll do a whole televised global selection progress later this year. It's a nonprofit. So the whole way that they're going to fund this is through a reality show about the whole process of selecting the astronauts, training. So now, if you are at least 18 years old, you can (laughs) apply to become a Mars colony pioneer. (laughs) So, you know, there's intelligence, mental and physical health. Dedication to the project. Yeah, I'd, I'd say you should have some dedication if you're not planning on coming back. I kind of want to hear what their, what is their video? Uh... You know, I don't know. 
Oh, I create my own there's, little voice. There's no sound. Uh, I just wonder if they had some interesting tracks. So the whole thing, the whole, the trip there, the setting everything yep. up, it'll all be a show. Yes. Eight years of trading. So they'll kind of milk whatever they can from it. I'm assuming it's going to kind of be stop and go for it. But they have, you know, they announced this on the 8th. They already have had more than a thousand individuals submit before even the, the whole process started. That doesn't surprise they, me at all. Oh, yeah, incredibly so. So I mean, part of you know, if I didn't you know, if I didn't have like a lot of things going on at the moment. Yeah. That would at least at least go like, Oh come on, that's a one that that's a history book one. Yeah. Yeah, that Don't do it, Heather. No, because Sci-bite, you know. Yeah, well, I unless I unless they let you do it from the road. <laughs> well, you know, there's there's other things, but yeah, Skype the right situation, the right alternate universe. Right. I would definitely be writing something out and being like, I already have it written. Should I send it? Hmm. Wow, that is that. I gotta tell you, I, is that really gonna happen? Is this really gonna happen? I don't think this is really gonna happen. I don't Question mark, shrug shoulders, hands in the air. If you had to bet, though, would you bet it's going to happen? No. Yeah, see, I wouldn't either. I, I mean, I would like it to in a way, but then Yeah, also, they'll get... I don't know if we want to watch people do that. It's probably yeah, not I a mean, pretty thing. It's probably a very hard thing to watch well, to do and boring yeah, I mean, for large send, portions. You know, they'll send off some cargo stuff, and then they'll send four people. And then every two years... Some more people get there. So for two years, it's four people. So, yeah, that would require a lot of good mental and physical health, you know, so that you don't want to do anything to anyone else. And then you could run from whoever it is is angry that day. Would they try to make it entertaining? Uh, Have they talked about any of those details? Oh, they haven't. But let's face it, reality shows. How reality are reality shows? Well, I it know, is, but I mean, what can you, how how much can you gin up a travel to Mars? I mean, you're gonna have the four people fight the whole way there. I mean, what? Can, oh gosh! It's not like they can have like people stop by for a party. <laughs> you know, they can't like go out, go to the club. Yeah. I mean, what are they gonna do? What, they can't. They, they're, so they're gonna send up more than four people, and there's gonna be bets about who gets kicked out. Of an airlock or something? What are you talking about? Did you see that ABC show? That, no. Uh, so ABC did a show like this. It was a, it, they were going much further out, but mm-hmm. they, it was a, they the premise of the TV show was it was a reality TV show, and that's how it was paying for the trip to this planet. The problem is they like run into aliens along the way. Oh gosh! And, and but they don't want to. Anyways, it they canceled the series. But yeah, there was yeah. That, I mean, to actually see this happen, uh, I, I mean, I would definitely watch it. I would, yeah. I would probably get TV service just to watch it. I don't even have TV service. I would probably get it. Although I would think they would stream this. Yeah, they for a fee. It would make sense. Yeah. Wow. So we'll wonder how far. They'll definitely do some selection stuff, and that'll go forward. And my guess is training might continue six months to a year after some sort of selection process, and then after that, goodness only knows. That's kind of at a max that, I, that I'm looking at right now. Yeah. Well. So, I mean, if you hear any global reality details. TV event. Yeah, anything else that really comes out. I really kind of brought it up again because they actually have had their official right. 
announcement of requirements so far. Right. It's it's yeah. Well, uh, so Heather has links to that if you guys want to go uh, go apply. And uh, in the meantime, yeah. Heather, watch out because our proximity sensor right there is a starship. Oh. Hey. It's a spacecraft update. It is. What do we got? All right, a little bit closer than Mars, the moon cam. That was we talked about the ebb and flow, the two lunar orbiters that were measuring, you know, the gravity right. from the moon. They had like iPhones yep. on those things. They got the vertical video syndrome going on. This is Yeah, they had some cameras on there yeah. that were kind of put on at the last minute for elementary and middle school students. This is really cool. Yeah, so Oh, look at that. They crashed, you know, they crashed them into the into the surface couple of shows ago I talked about it and the moon cam the cameras were actually able to take more than 115,000 images as they were kind of go in they don't even look real they look like they look CG it just looks so alien yeah well it's from six and a half a little over six and a half miles up right so everything's smooth and soft yeah I mean they're not the highest resolution but it's a great sense of kind of what you would see if you were in close orbit to the moon. Yeah. And it was just three days before the mission ended. You know, before they impacted into the room of a crater. But it was really interesting. I saw the video and I was like, that is cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, uh, I like to just stare at it and pretend like I'm orbiting the moon right now. Yeah. Obviously. Um, it's neat. That is really neat. Uh, it, the uh, So, Heather... Uh, the uh, iPhone vertical uh, phone syndrome is a, is a symptom that affects people who hold their phone vertically and then they take video on it. Actually, the picture looks just like that. It's got the black bars on the side and it's very tall, so it's just kind of funny that uh, they, they also shot it like that. Within the, okay. Now, yeah. now I've caught up. Yes, yes. All right, Heather. Well, why don't we, uh, while you're caught up, why don't we head off to uh, Mars and do a uh, and lift curiosity off update. And of the Atlas V with Curiosity. All right, what do we got in the uh, spacecraft? Or, I'm sorry, the Curiosity update. Curiosity update. They have, over the new year, uh, right before the, the new year, should I say, the team downloaded as much data as they could possibly get from Curiosity, kind of free up all the da- on data, onboard data storage for the new year, kind of spring cleaning. New Year cleaning. Oh, okay. I see. I see. So, yeah. So they had a small little nine-foot drive to kind of get to this feature that they called Snake River. And they have two instruments that they're kind of using at this location. One, the dust removal. So over time, obviously, the rocks and everything on Mars gets dusty. So when it's on these rocks, it kind of hides features like little fissures or pits or any of the fine details of the rock surface. So they selected a rock, and they have a dust removal tool. There's a link in the show notes to kind of see this specific part of it. And it's two spinning metallic brushes hmm. that allow the, spe- the features to be exposed so, you can, so it can actually be used with the um, KimCam and all these kind of the more specific observational uh, tools on the on the uh, on the rover, so you can see, you know, their before picture and before and after pictures of how much dust it removed, and it's actually quite a bit. You can actually see a clean surface, and then they can 
go up to it and possibly use the next item, the rotary percussion drill. Now, they have to you know, search out for a suitable rock that they're actually going to test out. But this will be where they drill, it, drill into a rock so they can actually get samples from deep within a rock. Now, deep, you know, in a sense of the word. You know, maybe a min- an inch or two down. Okay. But, you know, it's incredibly deep as far as Mars rovers go. So right. they can drill down into it and then transport that back to the onboard instruments on Curiosity so they can kind of sort it out. They can say, we're going to take everything in this specific size range and dump it into this instrument so they can get a better idea of the the specific what's going on at this location. What kind of, you know, chemistry do we see there? What's the structure of the of the atoms, of the molecules? So get a much better idea of what's on the surface, what's beneath the surface, you know, the dust. So we have all these different things that are coming together to get a much better idea of what's going on on the whole. Getting down so, and work. This is this now is actual legit working time. Yeah, they're really, really starting to uh, pick up the pick up the data, pick up the science. So yeah. it'll keep going like this. It'll. It's all about driving to a new location, then hunkering down and doing a whole bunch of science. So that's a lot of what Curiosity is going to do. It's going to drive a di- some distance. Now maybe a long way. You know, if they have a long way to drive. And they'll kind of make some pit stops along the way at some place that's vaguely interesting if they can. <laughs> you know, if you have a really long road trip, you know, for a vacation, you've got a whole goal. Maybe you have a couple of pit stops in the middle. They're like, hey, that'd be kind of cool to, to see if we're, since we're driving by. So that's kind of what, it, what it's doing. And then I'll hunker down in different places and do all these instruments, you know, instrutation work and data. So these are kind of the first times that this dust removal and the rotary percussion drill are kind of moving forward to you know kind of dust the the dust off them and work they're dusting off the dusting tools yeah dusting off the dusting tools <laughs> getting them ready to to go speaking of dusting things off heather i'm dusting off the time machine why don't you jump in here let's here go we go. We'll go back right. in time Oh, all right. Looks like a short trip this week. Uh, This just takes us to 34 years ago this week in science, January 21st, 1979. That is right. So, Pluto and Neptune. Well, Pluto used to be a planet, Mm. but Pluto has a highly elliptical orbit. So it goes around the sun every 248 years. Now, its distance from the sun kind of varies because it's more egg-shaped than perfectly round. So most of the time, it was the farthest planet from the sun. But every 497 years, there's a 20-year gap that Pluto is actually closer to the sun than Neptune. (laughs) Yay, Pluto! Yeah, Pluto gets his, his moment in the sun. And during that time, Neptune is just a huge slacker. Yeah, he he becomes the farthest out then. I feel like Neptune gets no love. We never talk about Neptune ever. Well, he gets the sort of love this time. Yeah. Because Pluto in 1979, Pluto crossed inside of Neptune's orbit. 
So Neptune actually became the farthest planet from the sun. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, Neptune yeah. at least gets something. That's something. Yeah. You get a little, you know, a little, okay. Yeah, from 1979 to 1999, Neptune was the farthest planet from the sun. So, yeah, you, you might accept, you know, it might not be too hard to believe that um, this science astronomy geek was totally giving every science teacher a hard time. Because they say, name the planets and in order. Oh my gosh, Heather. You oh, are... <laughs> oh yes. Pluto, Neptune. Like, no. I'm like, yes, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> Go get my little book. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, they... Lots of teachers may have learned to look at my answer and then kind of sigh and put my test off to the side because they needed me to bring up references because I was giving the correct, my fingers say in quotes, results rather than what the book said. So, and I did it. I probably should have realized. I'm like, let's just write what the book says. And this was probably, I mean, this must have been pre-internet. So it's not like you could just go to Google and like type it in and say, look, right? Yeah. That's like, have my little book. I'm like, here you go. I bring my resources from I'm not, home. I'm not trying to date you, but. No. Well, I, just, I said. I, that's a challenge that we did have back then in that day. Yes. You couldn't just look it up on the internet and prove it. Hey, my library had, I had the cards. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so that's what libraries were for. <laughs> yep. Well, you like pull open the drawer. Yeah. But yes, Neptune became the farthest from the sun in 1979 this week. There you go. All right, Heather. Well, let me recalibrate the side by 2000 so we can look up into the sky this week. Let's go. Friday, January the 18th, we actually have first quarter moon. So it's about a quarter full. The Saturday, January 19th, about twilight, Jupiter is going to be to the far lower left of the moon. Hey-o. But by the time you get, you know, go forward in the night by 8 p.m., it's going to be upper left of the moon. So it's going to be on the left, kind of starting off low and, start, and ending up higher than the moon. Then, in general, what we've got our planets doing, uh, Venus, about a half hour before sunrise this week. Is going to be kind of getting lower and lower each morning into the southeast. It's going to get harder and harder to see closer to the horizon, but still there about a half hour before sun, sunrise. Mars is going to be hanging around about the last part of sunset, low in the west to southwest. And Jupiter, go Jupiter, you're going to be able to see it after sundown. The first quote-unquote star you'll be able to see in the eastern sky now, below it uh, is going to be a red star. That is a star, Aldebaran, not Mars. Mm. And then above Jupiter is the Pleiades star cluster. That mm. if you're in a darker area, you might be able to see it. It looks more like a fuzzy ball of stars. And, you know, it's one of those things where I think in ancient Rome, in order to see whether you were went to be an archer or not, they said, how many stars can you see? And if you could count, you know, seven stars, then that meant you had really good eyesight. <laughs> so then you got to be an archer. That's great. Otherwise, you're like, nope, you have bad eyesight. Go that way. The universe is built in eye test. Brought to you by science. Ding. <laughs> I, I, have, I have that handy. It's right there. There we go. <laughs> and Saturn, not to be forgotten this week, about 1 to 2 a.m. local time. Is going to be rising in the east to southeast. 
by morning, it'll be high in the southeastern sky by dawn. So that's it, the best chance I'll be able to see it. And then, again, I've mentioned it before, its rings kind of have a tilt. So think of a plate. You're looking at it straight on or you tilt it up. And it's actually the highest tilt, so you can see more of them, more of the actual rings than you've been able to see in the last seven years. So if you have a pair of binoculars or a small telescope, uh, take a peek towards Saturn. Hopefully, if you're awake at 1 to 2 a.m. or right before more, uh, sunrise, look in the east to southeast and check that out. Wow. That's a pretty busy week. Yeah. A lot going on up there. All right, Heather. Well, that's our whole show, isn't it? I think so. Holy moly, folks. Well, here's the details. SciBite is live on Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. Pacific. And uh, let's see, what, what what would that be? That would be uh, 10.30? No, that, that would be, yeah, 10.30 uh, Eastern, I believe, uh, over at jblive.tv and uh, jblive.info for the audio stream. Because we also should, we also stream it on the Jupiter Radio that I'd mentioned earlier. That's and, right. And uh, Heather, of course, folks can find you on Twitter throughout the week, right? You are JB yep. underscore Mars underscore base. That's right. And uh, they can also email the show, SciBite at JupiterBroadcasting.com, or you can use the contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. And then, of course, you can always download us Wednesday mornings. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of SciBite. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>